0: All right, we are getting to 9.30 here, so if everyone wants to grab a seat, we will get started shortly. And I'll ask: Do we have a volunteer who is willing to open up in prayer this morning? If not, then I. Oh, Ron. Perfect. Thanks. John. Okay, so last week we were in chapter 9, section number 1, and more or less finished it. Um, but I want to close that off and I guess work through actually. I asked Keenan for permission on this, but after class, Keenan came up to me and pointed out something that I think is valuable to discuss here. And that is, we talked about the two different views of free will. Okay? Uh, And there's essentially two different views of free will. Does anyone feel brave enough to throw out the names that we give those two views of free will? Libertarian free will, and what's the other one? What's that? Close. I'll give you a hint. It's compatible with God's sovereignty. It's called compatibilism, okay? And it's called because it is compatible with God being sovereign and man having a free will. Uh, And, of course, that is the view that historically uh, and by our confession that we would hold to. And so in the compatibilist view of free will, well, I'll start with... In the libertarian view of free will, and I think when people today hear the term free will, they automatically assume that definition of free will. And so this conversation can sometimes get a bit confusing because if you're just assuming that definition and then we mean something else, it gets confusing. So again, in libertarian free will, man can choose anything. Okay? You've got option A and you've got option B, and man can, with the same faculty choose either one equally so two options are laid before you and you can equally choose a or b and that is the basis of your freedom is kind of an almost an absolute freedom in compatibilism which i think is the biblical view which is consistent with scripture this view again says yes there's option a and option b And because man is a thinking creature, man can assess those options, he can understand what his options are, he has that faculty, but he will choose the one he most strongly desires. In fact, he must choose the one he most strongly desires. He can't not choose that one, he must. Uh, And so in compatibilist free will, man chooses whatever he wants. That's how you're free you can do whatever you want. That's the basis of your freedom. But this is a key difference is man is not absolutely free. We choose according to our desires. We choose according to our nature. And as we've already seen in other places, and we'll get into it more in this chapter, um, fallen man uh, does not have a nature that wants righteousness. So fallen man will always choose in accordance with his fallen nature. And this is why we need the rebirth. This is why the Bible talks about being born again. This is why the Bible says you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Okay? You can't even see it. You're blind to it. You can understand the words of the Bible. You can understand the words of Jesus and so forth. Uh, But what you can't do is incline your heart to it. Okay? On your own. So we choose according to our nature. Um, and again, this is a bit of summary, but I'll stop there, and then I'll bring up what Keenan uh, brought up last week after class. Are we so far so good on the definitions and on the two different views of man's freedom? Correct. Right, so in the providence of God, that person is actually getting help that he may need. That is true. Um, But in Romans 14.36, maybe, it, it says, whatever does not proceed from faith is... Yeah, it's sin. It's sin. Okay, is helping someone sin? No. And also, yes. If it's a humanitarian kind of, look at me... Right? And to me, the most narcissistic, most obviously vain example of this was, if you're Mr. Hamster's age, or my age, or even a little bit younger, who remembers the big famine in Ethiopia in the 80s? Okay? And Bob Dylan, and Michael Jackson, and Bruce Springsteen, and, and uh, Ray Charles, and all these big names got together and they sang, We Are the World. And if you watch that video, everyone's looking to make sure the camera's catching their good side, (laughs) right? Uh, And, and, you know, in certain cases, they were making sure that the camera caught them crying tears of compassion, right? Because the world needs to know (laughs) that I, Bruce Springsteen, am the most important person in the world. Nothing against his music. It's excellent. But (laughs) Bruce Springsteen is a narcissist. He does not love God, okay? Michael Jackson did not love God. Tina Turner did not love God, as far as we know. I I won't make a final judgment. But these people are doing something for food aid, okay? And whatever money they raised actually did help feed people. So in the providence of God, this is good, yes. But have any of those people moved the needle of righteousness towards God, even, even a little? They have not. They have not moved the needle of righteousness whatsoever, because they're not doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it for the glory of man. Because frankly, it's really good for Michael Jackson's career to have something about compassion on his, on his resume. Okay, so they're not moving the needle of righteousness. So yes, in the providence of God, they're doing something good and helpful, but it's coming from an unregenerate heart. Okay, um, The same kind of principle applies. Well, what about people? We talk lots today about seekers. That people want, they're looking for God, and yet somehow God is evasive. What's happening there? Um, And I think what's happening there is if people are curious, and they're they're seeking, so-called, and yet never arriving at God, what I think is happening is that people want the benefits of God, but not God himself. Because God does not hide himself from people. He does not. Okay? If you want God, he's there. If you want to repent of your sins, God is faithful and just, and he is ready to forgive you for everything in an instant. So these seekers that never seem to find God want the benefits. They want the peace that comes from forgiveness. Okay? They want the peace that comes from knowing God, but they don't want God himself, because that would be too humiliating. Okay? So, uh, to bring it back to this, uh, we are always choosing, but I do not believe, and I think consistently with these confessions, that an unregenerate man can gin himself up to pleasing God on his own steam. That must come through the Holy Spirit transforming our will Um, so again in god's providence he may use those things but we're not moving we're not moving ourselves closer to god in doing those things if that makes sense the way i'm explaining it i'm not sure if that that does or not mrs unra Okay, so she, so Mrs. Unrod just said, well, what about people who uh, are baptized and then they fall away, but they still hold on to some assurance because they were baptized, so it doesn't matter because they'll be in heaven anyway. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah. Yeah, so that almost gets to being saved by baptism, right? And, and that's, uh, baptism is important and I wouldn't want to downplay it, but could an unsaved person get baptized? Yeah. Sure, sure they could, right? Um, and if, if a person walks away from the faith uh, in such a way that they're not restored by the end of their life, that every indicator we have says they're not regenerate, their baptism does nothing. Baptism is not magical. It, it's, a, it's a sign and a, and a seal that we give to people based on what we understand to be happening, but it's never perfect, right? It, it's possible that you could baptize someone who's not actually born again, right? And, and in our experience, we probably all know people like that, right? I think in Jesus' parable of the soils, there's one like that, right? It, it sprouts up quickly, but because there's no root in that person, it just life gets tough and And it peters out and and falls away, right? And we probably all know some people like that. They were in church. It looked good. They got baptized. It's looking good. And then you wonder what happens. And sometimes those people, I think, if they're genuinely born again, that season will come to an end and they will bear fruit again before they're passed away. Um, But if there's no turning back before the death... I think everything would say probably that was just something other than genuine rebirth. Because I don't think we have reason to believe that Christians can go through life without bearing any fruit. Not everyone's fruit will be the same. Some will make this much progress and some will make this much progress. But everyone needs to be working at putting sin to death and growing in holiness. But how that ends, I don't know. I always think if we looked at Judas before his betrayal, oh, that looks good. Man, this guy's a deacon inside the apostles. He's trusted with the money. This guy's for sure made it. And you look at David the week after his adultery, and then he's murdered someone. That does not look very promising at all. And yet, they both have a surprise ending, right? So, so we shouldn't give up on people just because they're in a season of bad fruit either. They may... In fact, be restored. Uh, how's that? Yep yeah. No, and we don't know. I've seen some people that I've given up all hope on, and amazingly, they're back. And some people where it looks like this is really hopeful and it's just it Peter's out, it seems to go nowhere. But we can keep praying and we and we don't know. Until someone's dead, it's not too late. <laughs> right? Vern. yeah well, oh, that's good yeah, and properly understood, that is a great psalm to put all of this together. improperly understood it can <laughs> yeah. I have actually literally seen a corvette poster up on a wall with psalm thirty seven four because and just just keep claiming it that Corvette's yours, yes, I'm on my fourth marriage and my third bankruptcy, but that corvette that it's mine I, I, right. But properly understood, it's a wonderful assurance, because we will get what we want. Yep, we will get the glory of God. Have I summarized, in a way that's understandable, the two basic views of free will? Because I do want to get to what Keenan mentioned, okay? So the way the c- confession teaches, the way uh, the theology of the Reformation teaches on free will... What is meant, and Calvin himself said this, if by free will we mean that man can do what he wants, then I absolutely affirm free will. If by free will we mean that man can incline himself towards God, then it is far too grandiose a term. Okay, Man cannot incline his will to God. That must be a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit, giving us a new heart, giving us rebirth. But in both cases... Every person, regenerate or not, is always choosing what they want in the moment of decision. A hundred percent of the time. Okay? Even when there's conflicting desires, the strongest desire is always the one that makes the final choice. And then, you read this, and Keenan brought this up. God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. So it says here it's not bound by nature. So am I teaching something that is contrary to the confession? No. Uh, And I think a little bit of historical perspective would be useful here. At the time of the Reformation, when all these creeds and confessions and everything else came out, uh, everybody who was called an evangelical or a Protestant um, held to what was called Calvinism, what we call Calvinism today. More or less without exception. If you held an Arminian view of free will or a libertarian view of free will, it made sense for you to stay in the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Um, and it's a mistake of history. If you found John Calvin in glory and you asked him about Calvinism, he'd say, what? Uh, Well, the five points of Calvinism actually didn't even exist in John Calvin's life. (laughs) After he was dead and buried, a controversy arose, and some other people summarized his teaching in five points. John Calvin has no idea about the five points of Calvinism. That's later work that summarized his... uh, his doctrine in the face of a controversy that had erupted among evangelicals okay uh it may as well be called lutheranism because as much as this is associated with Calvin, luther Calvin's the quiet kind of scholarly guy that just writes books luther's the bull in a china shop he's the guy yelling this stuff five times louder than Calvin and 20 times more often about the bondage of the will okay uh But one thing, all branches of the Reformation, whether in Holland, in Switzerland, in Germany, in England, one thing everybody agreed on was that man cannot incline his will toward God. This must be a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. And about a hundred years later, uh, a a Dutch uh, college professor by the name of Jacobus Arminianus, who respected Kelvin, said he is the theologian of evangelicals, no question, uh, but I am going to revamp some of his work on a certain area. And the church met together, and Arminius held to what we would call libertarian free will. The church from around the world met in Dordrecht, Netherlands, and examined this teaching, and Arminius could make a defense of his position, uh, and there was delegates there from England and from Germany and from Netherlands of course and Scotland and everyone came together to to hear this out to work through this this is where the five points of Calvinism comes up Um, but they refuted his teaching they said Arminianism is a major step back towards Rome if man's will is free in the sense that man can incline himself to God and he can activate his rebirth by a decision of his will we're halfway right back to Rome. Then this was all for nothing. Okay, um, and so the Council of or the, no, the Council of Dort said it never said it was heretical, but it said it's a step back to Rome. This isn't what the Bible teaches. We're going to stick with uh, the theology that we uh, have known up until this point. But what happened in that was now there was a respectable adherent within the evangelical church for armenian theology. And today I would guess it's the vast majority position. If I had to guess, I would guess if you took evangelicals today, I would guess 70 to 80% are probably armenian and not calvinist in their understanding of free will. And historically that's a bizarre thing. Okay? The, the story is sometimes told of a camel who sticks its nose in the tent and if you don't bonk it on the nose, it's the whole camel's in the tent eventually. That's what happened with this. Uh, Arminianism was allowed to stick its nose in the tent, and now it's occupying 80% of the tent. But from a historical biblical orthodoxy standpoint, it's, uh, it's not reformational or evangelical really in any historical sense. So what these guys are doing in 1689 is that they are aware that Arminianism exists, and they are refuting it in a certain sense. Uh, but it certainly was not a majority or a major position. It was You could find it in some fringe churches. You could find it here and there. Um, primarily, what they're talking about here by nature is biological nature, not your human nature, not your desires. They're talking about human nature. So what they're saying here, that we're neither forced nor inherently bound by nature, is one... If you go to the garden with Adam and Eve, who had free will in a sense that nobody in this room ever has had, was there anything in Adam and Eve's biology that forced them to sin? No. Was there anything in their biology that forced them to resist sin? Well, obviously not, because they sinned, right? So there was no natural compulsion that kept them from sinning obviously but there was nothing in their constitution that forced them to sin either they were free in a way that we uh, are not so what this is saying here that we're not bound by nature it's not talking about human nature it's talking about biological nature it's talking about well i'm an alcoholic okay the aa approach to addiction so i'm i'm an alcoholic and so i'm an alcoholic for life okay I haven't touched a drop in 10 years, but I'm still an alcoholic, where you identify your sin with something that's intrinsically in you. Okay? I am a homosexual-attracted Christian. I've never acted on it. I'm celibate, but I'm a homosexual for life. Okay? That kind of defeatist, unbiblical thinking where you so closely identify your sins with your biological constitution is not biblical. Okay? And I know AA has helped many people, but that idea that I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic for the rest of my life, what does the Bible say? Such were some of you, but now you have been washed. Okay, So if you haven't had a drop in 30 years, you're not an alcoholic. You're a Christian. You've been redeemed. You've been freed from slavery. You've been freed from addiction. Okay? If you experience same sex attraction and you have never acted on it, you've been celibate out of obedience to Christ, guess what? You should not call yourself a gay Christian because you're not. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you have been cleaned. Now you identify with one identifier I am a Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. I'm not an alcoholic Christian. I'm not a white Christian. I'm not. I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. That's who I am. Such were some of you. So this is pushing back here when the word nature is used. What it's pushing back against is an idea that was popular in the secular world at this time. Which is kind of this enlightenment idea that man is just a biological machine. Man's just a biological cause and effect machine. And we just do what hydrogen tells us to do at certain pressure and certain temperature. Okay? Uh, almost as though we don't have a mind or we don't have a will or we don't have a constitution or desires. They're pushing back against. That was the, uh, the popular idea here. Okay? Uh, and I hope this is making sense. So they're talking about biological nature. They're not talking about human nature where we have moral capacity to think things through and then act upon uh, our decision. Um, and it's a good point because I'm using the word nature both here and so... The, the comment that came up is an important one and so this is to clarify yes this is teaching compatibilism what it's denying is that there's a biological force in you that forces you to sin because <laughs> that's how hydrogen reacts at this temperature can't help it I have, I have to have another drink I have to my, my body's screaming at me I can't not do it that's, that defeatist attitude is what it's pushing back against here and I'll stop there I'm hoping that clarifies. I'm hoping that makes sense. I'm hoping that's not just whatever, word salad. Does that make sense? If we put this in its historical setting, what they're saying and what they're not saying with the word nature in here. Hugh. Okay, so Hugh, if you didn't hear, just brought up how this relates to election. So if this view of compatibilist free will is correct and man cannot incline himself to God, that means people who do incline to God have been born again by the Spirit. And that's purely a a sovereign act of God's mercy that we can't gin ourselves up for, right? And God does that not for everybody, And so the nature of what Hugh is pointing out is the objection, well, if God doesn't do that for everybody, how is that fair? Right? Am I summarizing you accurately? Okay. So how is that not fair? And I think there's two ways we should answer that, at least. There's, There's more that can be said. One is, again, if we're talking about fairness and justice, let's take ourselves back to the moment of the fall. If God acts according to justice, what happens? We all, we're all done. We're all done. Everyone is condemned. If we fast forward 6,000 years to today and God looks at this room of people on their own merit, who stands? Nobody. If God acts according to justice, everybody in this room is damned. And everybody who has ever walked on this earth, barring Christ, is damned. So an important first step is, who defines justice? Let's think about this through. If we're going to say, God, that's not fair, let's... (laughs) Okay. What's not fair, look at this. There's a room full of people who have been saved by grace. That's not fair, and I'm quite okay with that. I don't want fair. I understand what's in here. I do not want fair. I want mercy. So I think that's an important first step is let's define fair. Let's define justice. And what would that mean if God did act according to justice? What would that mean? Okay. He does with unsaved people. He does give them justice finally in the end. uh, And Christians get mercy. Nobody gets injustice. Okay. Some get justice. Some get mercy. No one in history has or will ever receive injustice from God. You'll either get justice or you'll get something that's much kinder than justice. So that's one place I would go to, and I think that's necessary to just think through. Who are you? Who are you? Secondly, most Arminians would hold to the view correctly that God knows the future with certainty. Okay? Some do not. There's something called open theism that says God does not know the future because it would violate free will, which is actually correct. <laughs> um, so if God knows the future perfectly, essentially the objection becomes uh, it would be better for this person if he had never been born. Right? God's making a bunch of people that would be better off if they were not born. And the Arminian has that exact same problem. We have the same problem. In either case, God is knowingly making people that will not be saved. And he knows that when he breathes life into sperm and egg. He knows if God has foreknowledge, okay, in the Arminian conception. So God looks down the corridor of time. If I create life with that sperm and egg union and I'm looking down the future, that person will not choose me. It would be better for that person had God not breathed life into it. But he does. So we still have the same problem. God creates human beings that will not be saved. And he knows that with certainty when he does it. So it, it, it does all boil down to an objection about God's justice. Yes, true, but, there are... but we'd also agree on that. They were presented with light, they were presented with the gospel, and they just consistently said, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. Calvinist Arminians agree on that too, okay. right? You, you, were pre- you grew up in a Christian home, man. You grew up and you saw Billy Graham on TV and you saw, you, you know, you, you could hear John MacArthur on the radio and you said no to all of it, okay? So we agree on that too. Okay. They're, they're presented opportunities that they're not interested in taking, Okay? Um, and in the final end, we also agree, God makes some people that he knows with certainty when he gives life, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and he creates them anyway. So, both views have to reckon with that, and open theism goes around that and says God doesn't know. God's in the system here with us learning as he goes along, and there's, that's a whole other set of big problems that that creates, um. Anything else on this? Yeah, and if if God was absolutely determined to save everyone, why not just write it in the sky? Why not make cloud formations in letters that everyone has equal? Tim brings up a good point. Um, so again, I wanted to go back and discuss what we mean by nature, what we do and don't mean, what, what these guys meant when they wrote this down. Um, but what they're presenting here and what I... Have been trying to communicate is a view of free will that is called compatibilism, which is you do whatever you want and trace through your experience. That's every choice you've ever made. Was exactly the one you wanted. And sometimes other people will limit your options. They'll point a gun to your head and say, Give me your wallet, or I'm gonna blow your brains out. Your options have been very limited. You didn't plan out to go that day and and, and be faced with that, but you're still choosing. You're still choosing to pull your wallet out or to risk it. You're still doing what you want. Okay. I often use, uh, always because it happens often in my life, my alarm goes at 3 a.m. And I, all things being equal, I'd rather stay in bed at 3 a.m. But I have a much stronger desire to get my cow's milk and take care of my farm. So there's competing desires, but I choose the one that I most strongly desire. I want to take care of my farm more than I want an extra half hour of sleep. So I get up and I i go outside but we're we're always choosing what we want and i think that actually not just makes more sense of the bible i think it actually makes far more sense of human behavior right because again if we could choose contrary to our desires if we could choose contrary to your nature choices just become arbitrary and spontaneous they don't mean anything and how could god justly hold someone accountable for a decision that's just arbitrary it's just a roll of the dice it wasn't intentional they didn't mean it, right? And people often give fake apologies on that, right? Some, some celebrity gets caught in a scandal. They said something really unkind or something. Well, I don't know where that came from. I didn't mean it. Well, yeah, of course you did. You said it, <laughs> right? Invisible forces didn't take over your mouth and make you say things that you didn't mean to say. Just own it. Maybe, maybe it was dumb, but we do things intentionally. We do what we want. And I'll stop there more discussion on this, more follow-up, more where I've been unclear. Are we seeing that there's two views of free will? That's what we want to get before we drive on. There's two different views of free will, so we can't just use the term interchangeably because different people mean different things by it. So we need to have an understanding of what we mean and what we don't mean. Okay? And there is truth to that. You do have a responsibility to open the door. What's missing is Christ is on the other side of that door. Yeah. Right? And he can and will incline your heart to open it. You, you, the door does have to be opened. It does. Yeah, he is on both sides of the door. Yeah. That, that, that door is locked from the inside. Yeah. And he has to give you the key so that you can open it. From the inside. No, it was presented as Jesus has done 99%, but now Vern Peters has to, on his own strength, be that decisive last 1%. Yep. And then who gets the glory for Vern Peters' salvation? That one? And it's the decisive, it's the most important 1%. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I've heard that too, Billy Sunday, God has, Satan has cast his vote against you, God has cast his vote for you, you cast the deciding, and of course he was an old baseball player, so he'd slide, slide into heaven, and he, there's all kinds of theatrics jumping on pulpits, but you got right, and, and that's why a lot of those old kind of tent revival preachers were very emotionally animated to try to gin up decisions for for Christ, yep, me. It's not in the Bible. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a universal experience, right? Ask Jesus into your heart. Who's heard that? Yeah. Okay. Is it in the Bible? No. Okay. There's lots of things that aren't directly in the Bible that can summarize biblical teaching. So I won't nitpick on that. I think it was Greg Gilbert, I forget who wrote a book, Quit Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And he's pushing back against that idea. And I think what he's pushing back against is this idea that you are the final decisive person who pulls the lever on your own salvation. Okay? And again, yes, we have to choose Jesus. Yes, you must repent of your sins. Yes, you must open the door. As long as we're understanding that's Christ working in and through us to do that. So when I open the door, it's actually a new me opening the door, right? When someone is seeking Christ genuinely, it's because the Holy Spirit has given them life. I probably, myself, wouldn't put it in those terms. I wouldn't probably talk about asking Jesus into your heart because I think it it misses an opportunity to talk about repentance and faith, you know, grieving over your sin, what does it mean to be born again, and, and so forth but I wouldn't correct someone on it either because uh, is Christ living in believers? Yeah, through his spirit he is. So I, I wouldn't nitpick about it. God is triune. You know, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So I, I think it's fine to use. I'd personally, again, choose other language just for the sake of clarity. But if a little kid told me, Pastor Matt, I invited Jesus into my heart last week, I would not discourage them. I would be very thankful and I would rejoice with them that they are in Christ and Christ is in them. And I would hope that through the course of many years of discipleship, their concept of that will continue to mature and and grow. Anything else on this? Okay, the next one is short here. Let's at least get started on it. Section 2. humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Okay? So, again, this is talking about our first parents in the garden. So, humanity in the state of innocence, before the fall, had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Okay? Adam and Eve did not have a sinful nature. They were free in a way that nobody in this room has experienced freedom. How exactly did that look? I don't know. Okay? How would that work? I don't know. Um, But they were temporarily in a state where there was not a sinful nature inclining them to sin, and yet their innocent nature was unstable. It clearly wasn't permanent, right? Because they did sin. They did fall. And the Bible doesn't really tell us how that happened, how that works, how their faculties worked, but we know that it did happen that way. So Adam and Eve had free will uh, in a sense that was more free than ours, not absolutely free, not free enough to overpower God's decree, but freer than ours in their ability to desire the right things. But it was unstable so that they could fall from it, and not only could they fall from it, they did. Okay, they did. Let's look at the text here. Who wants to take Ecclesiastes 7.29? Ray, and who wants to take, well, let's do that one first. So let's go read up to footnote two, and then let's go to Ecclesiastes 7.29. Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. And then go ahead, Ray. Okay. God made man upright. Okay. Did God make man with a sinful nature? He did not. We did that. God made man very good. God made man morally upright. And we corrupted it through our willful disobedience against him. But we can never blame God for our sin. We did that. We did that. Okay? We corrupted not just ourselves, but we corrupted all of creation with ourselves. Okay? So we cannot blame God for our sin. When you sin, it's really you. And the reason you're sinning is because you want to. It's on you. You're doing what you want. Okay. So God is not the author of evil. Uh, and then let's keep going. Yet this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Who wants to read Genesis three verse six? Keenan.
1: So
0: okay. So we see how this goes. And it sounds a little bit remember uh, I think in James 1, where it talks about the progression of sin, right? You, it presents itself to you, this opportunity, and then you think about it, then you think about it a little more, and then it's got its hooks in you, and then you do it, and then it's kind of fun, and then you want to do it again, so it's kind of more fun, right? Once it gets its hooks in you, uh, it gives way to death, and actually, why don't we go there? I think that's in James 1. Because he lays it out very nice how this works once we start looking at temptation for a little bit too long, rather than fleeing temptation. 113? Okay. Okay, do you want to read that, Don? If you've got it there? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. There you go. You see that progression? You look twice, you look a third time, you taste it, and you're dead. That's how this works, okay? And I think this is explaining what happened in the garden. There we go, okay. So, do you see that progression, how this works? Once you start rolling it around in your mind, then it gives birth, and then you're dead, okay? So... The, the level at which we as Christians must stop sin is with letting it roll around in your head. You just kill it, okay? Flee temptation. There's nothing cowardly about getting out of a bad situation, okay? You're not manning up by staying in a position that's going to compromise you, okay? Get out of there. Kill it. Kill it quick, okay? We all, you know, we all know how to do certain things in such a subtle way that we know we're kind of just walking down the path closer and closer to sin, And just stop it. Run away. Okay? Don't let it roll around. Dave. Dave, you've got a lovely young lady sitting beside you. Would you have sent her to Papua New Guinea as a missionary at age five? Oh, I have an answer to uh, <laughs> that. She's almost, um... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there was a time when the public schools were different. In grade one, my teacher, who I love dearly, was a returned missionary from Papua New Guinea who taught us not just how to pray, but in God's own plautich, she taught us how to pray. <laughs> in the original Bible language. Um, well, that, that's not where we are today. And I would say that the people, like Horace Mann and John Dewey, who invented the public school system, desired where we are now. And they were smart enough to do it slowly. But public education, in my mind, has always been a terrible idea. Please find me in scripture where it says it is the state's job to educate children. We want children to be educated. And I know what I'm, that the fact that I'm even saying that sounds bizarre, because everyone in this room, public education is just part of your whole experience. But the 80 years or less that everyone here has been alive is a pretty small blip, okay? Um, And when people started proposing an extreme idea of state education, and not just that, but then it became mandatory state education, I think we don't recognize how revolutionary and radical idea that is. Yeah, well, and that's exactly what Vodi Balcom says. Why should you be surprised if you give your children to Caesar for 13 years and they come back obedient little Romans? Why would that surprise you? They've got far more hours of religious education than we can do on a Sunday morning here. Eight hours a day, five days a week is pretty tough to all undo and reconstruct in two hours on Sunday morning and maybe an hour at youth. We're just, just time makes it impossible. And we had our prophets, when, when this idea that the state should educate children, and especially according to secular principles, when that came out, we had our prophets, our evangelical men that said, absolutely not. We had R.L. Dabney, a southern Presbyterian, who said, if we do this, it's going to become lowest common denominator. First, we're going to take the catechisms out of schools. And people say, what? We don't even do catechisms in church anymore, <laughs> Right they'll remove the catechisms from the schools they're going to remove the prayer from the schools and then lastly they'll take the bible out of the schools because it, it has to move to lowest common denominator kind of thinking um and so he said you know for that reason i'm out um jay gresham machin also great you know presbyterian man started westminster seminary same thing like, we cannot have mandatory state education bad idea more recently, Rushduni who, Rushduni, who kind of started the homeschool movement. And, and keep in mind how, how extreme this is. What, what got the people's sympathy to even make private school and homeschool illegal, in the 1960s, it was illegal almost everywhere to homeschool children. And there was this picture um, of these little Amish kids running from the cops into the cornfield because they were going to get taken away from their parents. And that picture went around. And that's all of a sudden when people's sympathy started to, okay, maybe this mandatory, okay? And so it's not so mandatory anymore. We have more freedoms now than we did in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, But the idea that we'd go there as a mission field, maybe, but I'd just say, does a five-year-old have the tools to be a missionary in a completely pagan environment? Boy, we better think about that before we just assume our kids are going to be salt and light. You know, the C.S. Lewis thing where you drop a white glove in a mud puddle, you don't talk about how white and clean that mud puddle became. To be one voice in the wilderness at a school seems tough. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a natural authority dynamic, right? The teacher naturally has authority that the kid will be intimidated. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say there's no liberty here. I would just say let's really think about that salt and light mission field argument realistically because we wouldn't put our kids in other mission situations at, at such a tender age. They've got to be trained first. Yeah, they're going in unarmed. Yep, yep. They're an unarmed person in a hostile environment, and that's... Yep. Well, and that's to say, too, that the Christian school is not perfect either. No Christian... And in fact, Christian schools can let your guard down. Oh, so everything that's happening here is good. No, 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 no. No.
1: Like
0: like and, and, and yeah no amen so yeah and i would i would want to leave room for christian liberty here but let's just really think through what what we're doing how we're training little minds how we're discipling them and people are coming here for church already so we better bring this in for a landing but we got through two sections today so that's really good Father God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you are good. Lord, thank you that you have given us everything that you require of us to know in your scriptures. Lord, and where we get to the end of that revelation, where we have questions that don't have direct answers, I pray that we would work through those and wrestle with those in a way that brings you honor and glory. Um, And yet also to be content to say, we don't know. We don't know how this works. We don't uh, fully understand it. We can't. Our minds are fallen and small. So Lord, I pray that you would give us both an unwavering, steel-spined confidence in your word to go wherever it would have us go, uh, and at the same time, a humility to say, there's so much that you have not shown us that we do not know. So give us a good dose of humility and of kindness and charity uh, along with that courage. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that as we prepare our hearts for worship, that you would be glorified in that that our hearts would be free from sin and from distraction, and that we would uh, be fed by your word, be fed by music, um, and that you would grow us into the kinds of saints that you would have us to be, uh, to be salt and light out in the world, making your kingdom known. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. and Amen.